It's always amazing to experience your soul lifted up when we sing the great doxologies of truth that are within us. But it's also a great thing to experience how the Word of God speaks to our heart. And now we will immerse ourselves in that Word. Will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15? We continue to make our way verse by verse through this amazing epistle. And I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, The Proof and Power of Christ's Resurrection. Now, to prepare our hearts and our minds, what if medical science announced to us tomorrow morning that they have discovered a way to instantly transform the human body so that suddenly it could be eternally youthful and all of the corruption and decay that's present within our bodies would completely disappear. That now they have found something that would help us to never grow old, our bodies would never wear out, Our bodies would be utterly impervious to any kind of sickness or disease. And better yet, the procedure is completely free. Now, obviously, if people heard that, would say, yeah, right. But if they began to see this, oh, my, people would sign up. Well, you know what? The good news is... What I just said is absolutely true in Christ. Amen? Now, we're not going to experience that until we die. But there is a resurrection body that we can look forward to. So if you want to know where to sign up, let me give you just one verse. Romans 10, beginning in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth. Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then I love the next phrase. It says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And I can testify to that, as I'm sure you can as well. And folks, it is this reality that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 regarding not only the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection that we will all experience, those of us who know and love Christ. And this was such a profound doxology of praise that Peter speaks of it in 1 Peter 1 and verse 4. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can tell he's just he's just overflowing with praise. Who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And you know what it says next? In this you what? In this you greatly rejoice. Folks, this is what this chapter is all about. And this morning we're going to look at the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read them to you. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. 
but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, let me remind you of the context in which this was written. If you've been with us over the last, actually, it's been over a year, I think, you will already know much of it. But remember now, the Corinthians in this church that were hearing this letter were heavily influenced by a pagan culture with all of their mystery religions. And like the pagan culture in our country, they were a very spiritual people. This is a very spiritual nation that we live in, right? And after all, only a fool could deny a creator. All they had to do is look around and see that something had to create all of this. So there has to be a God. And they also had enough sense to realize that there's got to be more to life than the pursuit of materialism and affluence and pleasure. So in their quest for meaning and satisfaction of the deepest longings of their soul, what did they do? Well, they created gods of their own making. But because man is spiritually dead, because he is alienated from God, because he's at enmity with God and wholly unable to find remedy in himself, is contrived Religious beliefs only provide an illusion of spirituality. Corinthian spirituality, like contemporary spirituality, was no different. And in that infant church that Paul founded, there existed this pluralism, this mixture of paganism and Christianity, a very poisonous syncretism that continues to bring destruction and misery into the church to this very day. Now, mind you, the dominating religion in our society is secular humanism. And it is seen most vividly in the liberal progressive movement that's in our country. It preaches a doctrine of moral relativism that essentially says there's no absolute truth, morality is fluid, it's determined by the culture, no one morality is better than any any other, and so let's just all decide what morality we want to have. And beloved, this is the poisonous fruit of secular humanism and the doctrine of moral relativism. In his recent remarks to the law school, and the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Attorney General William P. Barr addressed this devastating religion. Here's some of what he said. By any honest assessment, the consequences of this moral upheaval have been grim. Virtually every measure of social pathology continues to gain ground. In 1965, for example, the illegitimacy rate was 8%. In 1992, it was 25%. Today, it is over 40%. In many of our large urban areas, it is around 70%. Along with the wreckage of the family, we are seeing record levels of depression and mental illness Dispirited young people, soaring suicide rates, increasing numbers of angry and alienated young males, an increase in senseless violence, and a deadly drug epidemic. As you all know, Barr went on to say, over 70,000 people die a year from drug overdoses. That is more casualties in a year than we experienced during the entire Vietnam War. 
I will not dwell on all the bitter results of new secular age, but suffice it to say that the campaign to destroy the traditional moral order has brought with it immense suffering, wreckage, and misery. And yet the forces of secularism, ignoring these tragic results, press on with even greater militancy. And Barr went on to describe, quote, the force, fervor, and comprehensiveness of the assault on religion we are experiencing today in our country. He said, this is not decay. It is organized destruction. Secularists and their allies among the, quote, progressives have marshaled all the force of mass communications, popular culture, the entertainment industry, and academia in an unremitting assault on religion and traditional values. These instruments are used to not only affirmatively promote secular orthodoxy, but also drown out and silence opposing voices and to attack viciously and hold up to ridicule any dissenters, end quote. Well, obviously, the social and legal pressure of this of this secular progressive movement is fierce. It's fierce among Christians, Christian organizations, and many Christian institutions and Christian individuals are cowering in fear. And what I want you to realize is the same type of dynamic was going on in first century Corinth. All we have to do today is just listen to some of the rhetoric of the progressive left and you will immediately detect their animus towards Christianity, especially Bible-believing fundamentalists. Look no further than what was said in the Democratic presidential debate last week that showcases the, the leaders of this movement. It should be no surprise that, that during that segment on, on television, the Freedom From Religion Foundation ran an ad promoting their agenda. Maybe you saw that, saw this. At the end of that ad, their spokesman, Ronald Reagan, who is the son of the late great president, Ronald Reagan, wrapped up the, the ad by mocking divine judgment, saying, quote, I'm a lifelong atheist and I'm not afraid to burn in hell. It's frightening. Beloved, my great burden for this church is that, is that we will stand firm in the midst of the enemy's attacks upon us, that we might avoid the temptations of moral and doctrinal and spiritual compromise that inevitably leads to a false gospel and a phony Christianity. We already see the deadly effects of this and the the, the amorphous entity called evangelicalism that has thrown its doors wide open to everything from the LGBTQ agenda to the new social justice gospel, from ecumenism to egalitarianism. And we must be careful. Now, the pagan Greco-Roman culture in the first century, with all of its demonic mystery religions, had the same kind of an effect on that church and other churches of that day. And this was why Paul was so concerned. As a result of that, let me just rehearse the types of things that he's addressed so far. In that church, there was divisive sectarianism, extreme prejudices. They had a fascination for human wisdom, philosophical reasoning, staggering immaturity, jealousy, strife marked the church. They tolerated the worst forms of incest and other forms of sexual immorality. They were suing each other for silly things. They were divorcing each other for reasons that were unbiblical. They had bizarre understandings of the male-female relationships and marriage. They made a mockery of the Lord's Supper. They were selfish. They were arrogant. They were show-offs who abused their spiritual gifts. Their worship services were really 
a, a chaotic expression of self-promotion that had very little to do with honoring God and equipping the saints and edifying one another. And of course, this is the perfect breeding ground for false teachers to arise. And that's exactly what happened. False teachers who would do the devil's bidding and teach doctrines of demons. And naturally, all this combined caused them to adopt a very alien worldview from a diabolical murderer who is Satan, the father of lies, who knows how to appeal to the depraved lusts of humanity by offering a smorgasbord of deceptions. In fact, Paul spoke about this in 2 Corinthians 10. He called them fortresses, these deceptions and speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And the only way that a person and a church and a community and a country can gain victory over these spacious arguments Arguments of fools is to appeal to the word of the living God and be obedient to that word. And specifically in chapter 15, Paul deals with doctrinal deceptions that had crept into the church regarding the resurrection. Beloved, remember, all it takes is one erroneous view on one central doctrine. And Christianity begins to be sickened and warped, and eventually it dies. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? A building is only as strong as its weakest support beam. A body is only as strong and as healthy as its most diseased organ. And you might say that the resurrection is the very heart of Christianity. So this was a wicked deception that had crept into the church. Now, you must understand from the outset that they believed in the resurrection of Christ, but they weren't real sure about their own resurrection. Imagine that. Without our resurrection, all men would perish in their sins, right? Without our resurrection, there would be no subjects for for, for God's eternal kingdom. There would be no Lord Christ to, to rule and reign and for us to worship him. Death would be the eternal end. And that would be a horror that would haunt us every day of our life. It's for this reason, later on in verse 32, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just live it up, right? So Paul wants to remind them that without Christ's resurrection, there would be no hope of of our resurrection. And if only Christ was raised, but we're not raised, then we as Christians should be pitied among all people for being such fools. And so Paul now is going to attack this heresy head on. And from the outset, may I encourage you that Those of you who know and love Christ can be assured that our sins have been forgiven. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. And so sin and the curse that has corrupted and ruined everything is going to be reversed by the power of a resurrected Christ. He has made us new creatures in Christ. And he says, because I live, you will also Live. That is the great hope. Now, I find it fascinating that whenever you see wrong thinking, you see that it leads to wrong living. And so if you see wrong living in your life, all you need to do is just back up and realize that you got some doctrinal error somewhere, or you're not being obedient to the word. And so he's going to correct, or seek to correct these misunderstandings regarding the resurrection. And I might also add that chapter 15 is the most extensive doctrinal treatise on the resurrection anywhere in scripture. And I find this chapter to be so encouraging and so exciting. 
Oh, the hope that we have in Christ and what motivation we have to worship and serve him and what grace for God to give us these truths in his word. Now, the first 11 verses here are really foundational to what Paul is going to say concerning the resurrection, which is the very climax of God's grace. Uh, I mean, think about it. What a magnificent reality that brings to fruition the transformation of the inner man that we already experience, right? The inner man has already been made new. We're just waiting for the rest of us to be fully made new. We've been raised, we've been buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. And according to Romans 4.17, God gives life to the dead, physical life, eternal life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 11.25, he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. So no wonder the saints down through redemptive history have been willing to give up everything to serve Christ. So in verses 1 through 11, the Holy Spirit is going to provide, shall we say, five foundational pillars of the doctrine of the resurrection. And he's going to do this by helping us see five evidences, first of all, of Christ's resurrection. Let's make sure we understand that now, and we're going to build a superstructure on top of that. Now, although they believe these things, Paul is going to rehearse for them once again these magnificent truths. For indeed, if Christ is risen, then those of us who are united to him in faith will also be resurrected. So we're going to look at these five evidences. Let me give them to you. The evidences of, are the evidence of persevering faith. Secondly, the evidence of fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Number three, the evidence of eyewitness accounts. Number four, the evidence of the transformation of the Apostle Paul. And finally, the evidence of resurrection preaching in the persecuted church. Now, bear in mind, because the resurrection of Christ is at the very heart of the Christian message, it is going to be the primary target of Satan and all who follow him. And the early church was experiencing these relentless attacks. Let me remind you of this. You might recall in Acts 23, as well as Acts 26, Paul encountered enormous ridicule from the Jewish people especially from the Sadducees, concerning the resurrection. I think of Acts 26 when Paul gave his testimony before King Herod Agrippa. He stated, quote, Christ would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead. And you may recall in that text there was a Roman nobleman by the name of Festus who was there. And he was so frustrated hearing Paul talk about this. The text says that he shouted, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Moreover, at the very heart of Greek philosophy was Plato's concept of dualism that they had to deal with. You remember that. Everything that is spiritual is good. Everything that is physical is bad. Therefore, the Athenians, you will recall, sneered at Paul in Acts 17 when he talked about the resurrection. They believed that the body was in a prison, a physical prison, a tomb, and death would release them from the physical. So the last thing they wanted is to die and get another body. So they're thinking, my goodness, you Christians are nuts thinking of this. We see this thinking expressed by one of Rome's most famous Stoic philosophers. His name was Seneca. Here's what he said, quote, When the day shall come which shall part this mixture of divine and human here, where I found it, I will leave my body and myself I will give back to the gods. That's sad. That was the prevailing thought of the day. So undoubtedly, this deception crept into the church. And then you add to that false teachers that had come up from the church, from within the church. Perhaps they were influenced by Hymenaeus and Philetus, remember, in the church at Ephesus. Paul described in 1 Timothy 2, remember, they taught that the resurrection had already happened. So there's all kinds of confusion floating around. 
So Paul begins with, number one, the evidence of persevering faith. Notice in verse 1. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Now, let's stop for a second. Where did he get this information? Well, God revealed it to him. For example, Galatians 1, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. In other words, I didn't make this up, nor did anybody else. He says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Folks, what Paul preached was the euangelion in the Greek, the good news, which encompasses the entire body of biblical truth revealed by God himself concerning his plan and his purposes in redemption, how sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God. This is what he received. This is what he preached. He says, which you also, or which also you received in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So you must understand, he begins with a gentle rebuke here. He's saying, folks, this is the gospel that I preach to you, and you received it. Grammatically, in the original language, it's in the aorist tense, so it, it points back to a decisive act. You received this. I preached it to you, and you received it. He goes on to say, you took your stand upon it. And grammatically, again, this denotes a, a present stability based upon a past action that is producing a present state. You stand upon these things. By this very gospel, he goes on to say, you are saved. It's in the present continuous. It literally it says that you are being saved, which underscores the progressive aspect of sanctification. So bottom line, he's saying, folks, the miracle of regeneration has taken place in your life. There's been a spiritual resurrection here. The transformation of your lives is, is evidence of the power of the risen Christ, of Christ's resurrection. And then he adds this qualifying phrase, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, obviously, there were those in that church, as, as I'm sure there are in this church and in every church, that were not holding fast to the word that he preached. They really didn't trust in Christ as Savior. They, they lacked true saving faith. And so they believed, it says, in vain. That adverb, in vain, means with, 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 for no reason, uh, to no end. So they possessed, they possessed a, a superficial, thoughtless, confused, incoherent grasp of the gospel. They had no coherent understanding of it to apply it to themselves. Nor did they know how to really appropriate gospel truth in every aspect of their life. And by the way, Christianity has been plagued by this kind of self-deception down through the centuries. There are many people who call themselves Christians but refuse to walk in obedience to Christ. Churches are filled with what you might say professing believers who only give lip service to the Lordship of Christ. They're Christian in name only. You, you might say they, they are not holding, as Paul says, they're not holding fast the word preached. By the way, for the non-believer, that person cannot hold fast because they are not being held fast by the power of the resurrected Christ. That's why Jesus said in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I deal with this all the time. A few months ago, a lady came to me and she said, I, uh, she's not part of this church, lives in another state. She said, sir, I'd like to talk with you. She began by saying, my daughter's a Christian, but... She's a lesbian married to another woman who is not a believer. And she wanted me to help her understand how 
she should minister to her daughter. And I had to very kindly say, dear, dear lady, there, there is no such thing as a Christian homosexual. There's no such thing as a Christian homosexual, a person who is still enslaved in that kind of bondage. The miracle of regeneration changes all of that, makes a person a new creature in Christ. The old things pass away, the new things come. If the regeneration means anything, it means that. And that therefore gives a person the power to begin to live a life that is honoring to the Lord. First John 2 and verse 4, John says, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And I had to tell her, among many other passages, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I love what he says, and such were some of you, right? There we are. We're all, we're all guilty here of something within that list and others like it. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. In other words, you were set apart, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. My friend, if you are not holding fast to the word preached, to the word of God, then whatever you believe really doesn't matter. You have believed in vain. You have no basis to claim genuine saving faith. Jesus said in John 8, 31, only those who abide in my word are truly disciples of mine. Abide literally means continue to be obedient to my word. Continuance in Christ's word is, is, is one of the proofs of genuine saving faith. And this is one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you stop and think about it, and this is where Paul is going with all of this. If the resurrection was a fabricated hoax, as many say, then how do you explain the countless millions of people who have been radically transformed by the power of the gospel? How do you explain people that give up everything to follow Christ, even their lives? And again, true believers will hold fast to the word, come what may. And they do so because they are being held fast by the power of a living, resurrected Christ. So Paul begins, number one, with the evidence of persevering faith. Secondly, the evidence of fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now let's pause for a second. Think about this. These dear saints in this church were plagued with worldliness, and it has brought all kinds of misery into their life and into their church. There's chaos, there's confusion, there's division. And what happens when sin begins to dominate your life? You tend to forget what is most important. You tend to take your eyes off of the gospel. And that's what was happening here. Now, a slight digression, and I think this is very important in light of some conversations that I've had even this past week. Many today call themselves Christians, but they do not believe that Christ's atoning work on the cross was the once-for-all, all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. And that's what Paul said here, for Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. They do not believe, for example, Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 24, that says that Christ did not offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, in the Greek literally once for all, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you realize that many people that call themselves Christians do not believe that? Have you ever been to a Roman Catholic Mass? I have on a number of occasions. 
You say, oh, come on, Pastor. I mean, all that is is just their version of celebrating communion, right? The Lord's Supper. Oh, dear friends, if you believe that, you are, you, you're either ignorant or you've been deceived. Some of you have come out of this, so you know what I'm talking about. Let me give you some examples from the Council of Trent, their own document, their own teaching. Session 22, canon number 3. If anyone saith that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and of thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice. Propitiatory means a sacrifice that satisfies or placates the wrath of God. Or that it profits him only who receives, and that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for sins, pains, satisfactions, and other necessities. Let him be anathema. So, folks, if you believe what the Scriptures teach, then you don't believe what they just said, so we're damned, according to them. The Code of Canon Law, Canon 897, they say, The Eucharist sacrifice, the memorial of the death and resurrection of the Lord, in which the sacrifice of the cross is forever perpetuated, is the summit and the source of all worship in Christian life. Canon 1265, answering the question, what is the sacrifice of the Mass? Here's what they say. It is the sacrifice in which Christ is offered under the species of bread and wine in an unbloody manner. The sacrifice of the altar then is no mere empty commemoration of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, but a true and proper act of sacrifice. Christ, the eternal high priest, in an unbloody way, offers himself a most acceptable victim to the eternal father as he did upon the cross. Folks, it goes on and on from there. I mean, it's just pure heresy. This is not what what Paul preached. By the way, when Christ gave up his life, I believe he said it is, it is finished. He didn't say it has started. Paul goes on in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now remember, he's reminding them of the evidence of Christ's resurrection, in this case, with respect to fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And there are several salient Old Testament passages uh, in, that where we can read about the Messiah's resurrection, especially in Job and in the Psalter. Job speaks of, of seeing his Redeemer following his own death, standing on earth after the second advent of the Messiah. Here's what he says in Job 19, beginning in verse 25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Well, I can hear the Messiah right now, can't you? Oh, I love that. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. And likewise in the Psalter, Psalm 16, verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And both Peter and Paul discuss this text in the New Testament. Peter in Acts 2 and and Paul in Acts, I believe, 13. But many of the Old Testament references to the Messiah's resurrection can be summarized in the use of the word glory. I don't take don't have time to get into all of that, but in in fact the the New Testament writers refer to his resurrection obliquely or, or indirectly by using The term glory. For example, Peter explains that the Old Testament prophets were, quote, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the, here it is, glories to follow. First Peter 1.11. The glories to follow, dear friends, is more than a reference to his second coming. It includes the glory of his resurrection. 
And without the resurrection, there would be no glorious second coming, right? Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And Paul spoke of of Christ's resurrection glory as well in Romans 6 and verse 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So the New Testament writers reveal the Old Testament prophets speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. Certainly this was implied and pictured in Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, right? I mean, in his mind, he knew that that God would raise him from the dead to fulfill his, his covenant promises. It was pictured in the first fruits, the feast of the first fruits in Leviticus 23, which is revealed in the resurrection of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, where we're at, and verse 23. We see it pictured in Isaiah 53. No wonder the, those, those, those ignorant yet inquisitive disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember that great story? No wonder they heard the Lord Jesus say to them, Luke 24, beginning in verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, haven't you read your Old Testament? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, And with all the prophets, he explained to them things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Bottom line, Paul is saying to this group of people that consisted of many Jewish believers. I mean, folks, if you have any grasp of Old Testament scripture, you surely cannot be surprised that the Messiah was ordained to to suffer and to die and to be buried and then to be raised again from the dead. And the fact that that actually happened, as predicted in the Old Testament, is further evidence of the Messiah's resurrection. He moves on to a third evidence, that of eyewitness accounts, verses 5 through 7. And and here Paul provides a list of them. And by the way, these would have been people that could could have been, shall we say, cross-examined. You could have talked with them. He says in verse 5, and, and the, he, he appeared to Cephas, referring to Peter, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Remember that great story? Don't you know that would have been a shocker? Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. In fact, as we look at Scripture, we see that between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus appeared to all the apostles over a period of 40 days, Acts 1-3. 40 days he appears to them. So what Paul is, is doing here is using eyewitness testimony as a compelling way of proving his point. The esteemed historian Thomas Arnold of Oxford wrote this, quote, The evidence of our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be and often has been shown to be satisfactory. It is good according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up an important case. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no fact in the history of mankind which is better proved by fuller evidence than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. End quote. Fourthly, Paul uses the evidence of his own life, the transformation of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 8. And last of all, he appears to one untimely born. 
untimely born in the original language. It, it's, it's a fascinating term. It could be translated prematurely born or abortively born, an aborted child. He considered himself the aborted child in the family of the apostles. Isn't that interesting? Jameson Fawcett Brown commentaries, commentators put it this way, quote, As a child born before the due time is puny, and though born alive, yet not of the proper size and scarcely worthy of the name of man, so, Paul is saying, I am the least of the apostles, scarcely able to be called an apostle. Paul says, he appeared to me also. And you know that happened, right? On the road to Damascus? I mean, wow, think about that. And and it's also fascinating to think about that that the Lord's appearance to Paul was both both post-resurrection and post-ascension. I mean, we know that the Lord himself spent three years with Paul in Arabia, instructing him personally. Galatians 1, 17 and 18. We know in the book of Acts that, that the Lord spoke to him six times in visions. And he stood by Paul and spoke to him in Acts 23 and verse 11. We know that he was actually caught up into the third heaven, the very abode of God, as we read in 2 Corinthians 12. And Paul was amazed at all this, and rightfully so. In verse 9, I love what he says, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I love this phrase, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Well, we can all say that, right? By the grace of God, we are what we are. We're not much, but what we are, we are by the grace of God. And I love the next phrase, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. In other words, it, 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 it bears fruit for his glory and for my joy. He says, but I labored even more than all of them, and yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Beloved, here's, here's where he's going with all this. He is saying that it is the power of the resurrected Christ that produces this kind of radical change in the life of one who has been born again, who has been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. It is the power of a resurrected Christ that causes a person to have a profound awareness of their sin, that they are living in rebellion to a a holy God. And as they begin to see that they are living in rebellion to the Most High God, they begin to experience a brokenness over their sin and a longing to be reconciled, a longing that produces within within them a crying out for divine mercy and grace that they know they do not deserve. And by the power of the Spirit, they are born again. There is this radical transformation of the inner man. And as a result of that, everything, their nature, their whole disposition, the whole direction of their life begins to change. And part of that will include a person having just an unshakable zeal for the glory of God, for the things of God, a love for Christ that is so profound, they would willingly give up everything to honor him. And I hope that is true of all of you. Oh, what compelling evidence of the power of a resurrected Christ. And certainly this was well documented in the life of Paul, who used to be Saul that persecuted the church. And then finally, in closing, he gives the evidence of Resurrection preaching in the persecuted church, verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. In other words, whoever the preacher is, whatever the church, whatever the situation, no matter how great the persecution, this is the message that has been preached. 
that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And Paul's point is this, how could the resurrection possibly be a fabricated hoax if it was the undisputed theme of the gospel message preached by so many? Why would anybody preach that if they are going to be persecuted, if they are going to be ridiculed, if they're going to be tortured and perhaps experience some ignominious death? Well, dear friends, I must ask you, can others see the power of the resurrected Christ in your life? Have you acknowledged your rebellion against the Most High God? Or are you stubbornly saying, I'm good enough, or I don't believe that? When in fact, in your heart, you know it is true. Have you cried out for undeserved mercy? And have you experienced the miracle of the new birth such that others can look at your life and say, my, there goes a person that loves Christ. There goes a person that would give up everything for Christ. There goes a person who believes that Christ died for their sins and rose again and that they too will someday live with him forever. Can people see that in your life? I hope they can. And oh, dear Christian. Unlike the Muslims who mourn the death of Muhammad every year, visiting his tomb, we serve a living Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, who said, because I live, you shall live also. Folks, in closing, can I just put it this way? Turn up the volume of this song in your heart. Let it resonate within you. Let it become the topic of your conversation with your wife, with your husband, with your kids, with your friends. Let it drown out the voices of of guilt and ridicule. And certainly, let it replace the funeral dirge with an oratorio of praise that sings, For me to live is Christ and to die is, oh, death. Where is your victory? No death. Where is your sting? Let's pray together. Father, we celebrate these great truths and we thank you from the very core of our heart that you not only did this for us, but you have revealed these things to us and that by your grace, We have them within our souls, animating our hearts to live for your glory. And certainly as we do, we experience your joy, even in the midst of the most horrific situations that we often find ourselves in. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. May these truths bear much fruit to the praise of your glory. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.